0: Welcome again to Creative Mind. I'm your host, Bobby Brill, and in this episode, we're gonna spend a little bit more time talking about fashion. But fashion after the catwalk show is over, after the models have gone home, after all those wild and crazy designs are boxed up and shipped back out, now we're gonna talk about the type of fashion that you go and buy in a store. The actual product development side of fashion, where you've gotta think about current trends, technical drawings, industry standard software, sourcing materials, international shipping, factories around the world, all of that hardcore stuff that goes into actually making the clothes that are on your back right now. And the person we're gonna be talking to today is Andrea Skillings, and she is the Fashion Product Development Program Coordinator here at the Academy of Art University. And she helps students to focus on what is required to bring a fashion product from a basic concept to designing that product into something that's actually going to be sold. All these critical and theoretical ideas about product development. And this is a really good talk because she goes deep into the job of working in fashion. Not just the world of fashion, but your career in fashion and how you're actually going to make money, either as a small independent designer, all the way up to say, working at a major chain like Target or Nordstrom's. So, so really take some notes on this because she's got some great insight into what it takes to be successful in the fashion business. And after you've listened to the podcast, head over to our YouTube channel so you can see a video of one of the factory tours that Andrea took us on here in San Francisco. And as always, if you like what you're listening to, please hit subscribe so you never miss an episode of Creative Mind Podcast. And now without further ado, here is Andrea Skillings and the business of fashion. Introduce yourself and tell me about your role here at the Academy of Art. Uh,
1: My name is Andrea Skillings. I am the program coordinator for the product development program through the School of Fashion. Um, We are kind of focused on designing for business. So I came aboard in order to uh, build a program that allowed for students to gain the skills necessary to be successful in the fashion industry.
0: That's something I know we've talked about, and no matter what you're studying in art school, a lot of students deal with right after they graduate is, I've studied this thing that I love, and now I have to actually get paid for it. And that's two very different things. So what does that look like in, in your role and what you're teaching? How does, you know, where's the paycheck come in?
1: Essentially, I mean, it's still creative in that you're responsible for designing collections season to season. Um, I think what's different is that it's referred to as designing for market. So essentially, you're really kind of responsible for understanding what we refer to as the product development process, which is kind of the steps that a product takes from the initial concept through to where it is Um, in the retail space. So essentially, you have to have an understanding of cost, manufacturing, sourcing, as well as kind of this creative component in design. So there's a lot more involved in being able to provide some type of cost analysis so that you're sure that your business is going to be successful in the end.
0: So this this is really sitting down with the you know, if I go to Target versus J.C. versus Sears, more more stores that don't exist anymore. Let's see if I can name stores that actually exist. Uh, Target, Walmart, and then say maybe something at a higher end store where I look at the black T-shirt, and it's five dollars, ten dollars, sixty dollars.
1: Yeah, so it's a lot of um, kind of analyzing materials, analyzing construction and really kind of breaking down the individual components. Essentially, everybody can make any product that you want. It can be like the black T-shirt that you're referring to. Essentially, I can make a black T-shirt that's inexpensive, um, only meant to last one or two wears, doesn't have the best product quality. Or I can select different materials, put more money into what we refer to as the make of the garment to make it a higher end, uh, longer lasting product that, you know, customers are willing to pay more for. So I think what's really important is kind of understanding that, yes, anybody can, not anybody, but you can be creative and design product products. Basically, for any business that you're in, it can be um, kind of budget pricing, or it can be you know luxury or couture pricing. But essentially, your understanding of how the product is made and how materials are selected and how seams are constructed, this is really going to determine kind of the end use of this product, and that's going to vary based on the company that you work. Is
0: that and is that really a thing? I mean, I I know I've bought shirts over the years. I mean, I'm I'm 42 and a Parent now. So I, I, my, my fancy clothes shopping is when I go to Costco. So it's like, ooh, 10 black t-shirts for $12. I'll get a month out of this. I won't have to do laundry at all. But then I have seen shirts where you know, they, they do last. I mean, what, what are some of those, aside from material, What are, and you mentioned seams, like what are some of those cost points that people don't um, really understand unless you're, you're studying fashion?
1: it goes into what we refer to as the make or the construction of the garment so the different stitches that are selected the different seams that are selected um, the number of seams um, the number of trims that are used to clean finish or edges or kind of reinforce different components all of those little add-ons are what's really important i mean if you were to compare for instance, say you were to take your t shirt from Walmart or Target and then sit it next to a t shirt that's a little bit higher end, maybe I don't know, J. Crew or Madewell, you'll see different things about it that are constructed differently. For instance, um, the t shirt from Walmart may be a tubular knit, which means there's no side seams it's easier to manufacture, it's done faster in the production process. Um, Whereas, you know, something for Madewell is going to have side seams. In addition, they're most likely going to have some type of twill tape at the back neck to clean finish the back neck. There's going to be elastic taping at the shoulder seams in order to reinforce the shoulder seams. You know, there's going to be more in the construction of the garment. I mean, along with better quality materials, but, you know, there's different parts of the garment. Like if you were to break it down and really kind of analyze part by part, you would see substantial differences um, for each of these garments depending on the price at the end. Okay,
0: so this is where it's getting into a cheap factory, a factory with more steps, a factory with more machines, and a factory with more machines, and then human beings getting involved also.
1: Yeah, I mean, all of that also plays a factor in it. I mean, you know, depending on where it's manufactured, Um, You know, labor is costed differently in different parts of the country so that impacts it, but also you know how big the factory is how fast they can manufacture or what's the capacity that they can hold. These are all things that are going to um, impact Cost, but more so from a brand perspective, because, you know, somebody like Walmart is making 10,000 pieces where somebody from Madewell may be only making 5,000 pieces. You know I mean? That alone is going to impact where in the world you can select to make your products. So, you know, I mean, these are bigger companies, but if you were a smaller brand, you know, places like China might not even be, um, you know, in your wheelhouse, essentially, because, uh, minimum order quantities are much higher and as a small brand you don't have those capabilities so you know i mean it kind of really it. there's so many factors that kind of play into it but i think there's different parts that kind of play into the product quality for one and then second into kind of the different manufacturing processes that are involved okay
0: okay because i know I've, I've you know we visited a factory together and there was a lot of machines that was like oh wow that's doing this thing thing that I notice is not on my shirt. And it's and somebody's sitting here hand trimming things. So I actually lifted up the corner of my shirt and went, Oh, I get that. There's that little fit th- that they cut that thing off. Got it.
1: Yeah. So in the in the production facility itself, um, depending on the types of production methods that they use, um, each assembly uh, person that's working on the line will have a different responsibility. So the place that we went is basic uh, assembly line method, where essentially one person does one task and when they're done with that task, they pass it on. Um, this is the fastest way um, to manufacture, given because typically because those, the person that's working on that, particular part of the garment is very skilled at it therefore you know they go through it really quickly they do it really fast but in all honesty with that that tends to also be where there's the most defects and the most problems along the way because essentially they're just working on that one part they don't know any other parts so essentially if if for instance where we went um, dad sewing if one of those sewers called in six somebody wouldn't be able to move into her place and take over that responsibility. Instead, instead it would slow down the production line for that day. Whereas other production processes, uh, people have, for instance, modular manufacturing where they have kind of a group of people that do different parts of the garment, but they're all skilled in all areas so that they can shift around in the assembly line of where they need to complete based on the total number of items they need to get out for a day. So. They get paid more money because they have a higher skill level, so it tends to be a little more expensive as far as production is concerned. But essentially, what happens is you don't slow down the process because you can shift people around if necessary.
0: Okay, so you know you you mentioned that you would, we were talking you know cheap T-shirts are in the tens of thousands, probably hundreds of thousands if they're going to China or somewhere in Asia, um, and if they're five thousand lot runs, a thousand lot runs, they're in theory, locally produced. Um,
1: how even less than five hundred? Even less than
0: five hundred. Okay. Um, so for these locally produced, you know, for, for people who are doing their their lines, they're starting out with you know I'm going to do five hundred t-shirts and try and sell them to boutiques, um, or online, or or something like that. How does that process work? Of I've got my idea, and now I'm going to be a fashion designer, and I'm going to sell my fashion. I know that's a loaded question, but what's what's the the basic okay, you need to know this before you go and bum money from everybody you've ever known and fail miserably.
1: I mean, I think I think sourcing and manufacturing is probably the most challenging component because we can all make pretty products on paper, but be actually being able to execute it in the end. So, I think a lot of people that are starting out um they manufacture locally here in the United States. Because like you saw with the factory that we went to, she not only was um, very inviting with like you know, coming in and reviewing the components and offering different suggestions, you can communicate very openly. Whereas if you go to China, um, you know, English might not be their first language. And there's also this time lapse. So you can't actually sit down and talk about the product. So I think in the end, when you're first starting out, a a lot of people look to local manufacturing, whether it's you know, in California or New York, because they're able to kind of utilize those resources a little more heavily than somebody that's been in the industry for a long time. So like, essentially, you would be relying on these people to kind of help you get the product you want, just by verbally describing the expectations that you're looking very for. very much like a design partner,
0: to, whether or not officially yeah. or not
1: yeah i mean when you're working in when you're working overseas not to say that that relationship doesn't come but it takes a little bit longer to kind of build that um trust for one but also like that level of expectation you know i mean because essentially you know somebody in china might be thinking about oh well they're look they they want to make sure they cut costs you know but you really may be looking for a specific end product and kind of you know what does that look like? And you, with a local manufacturer, you can talk about that a little bit more openly and look at specific examples to get a comparison. Well, sure,
0: I'm, I'm guessing. I mean, I've worked on manufacturing on some, on some smaller levels. And it seems like, you know, there's that, when you get to the 100,000 unit piece, saving 10 cents is a massive deal. But if you're doing 500, it's like, well, I, I kind of want that 10 cents more effort. <laughs>
1: It's not going to make that much of a difference. And I mean, most people that are starting out, quite honestly, are not even ordering 500 pieces of one style. They're ordering more like 50 or 100. So, you know, getting the product right, I think, is more important because you're building brand. You're building a brand identity and you're kind of identifying what you're going to be about from here on out so especially in your first collection i don't think you want to make any sacrifices to like what your idea is or what your final expectations are okay so
0: it sounds like to me though then if you're doing that little profit is not the motive because you're not really going to be making that much money at that it's going to be expensive
1: profit is always the final end result i mean you're you always want to make money but in the beginning stages you're likely to not be able to make too much money. I mean, not to say that you won't be profitable, um, you know, but, you but you're not keystone sure that anything. you no, no, you're not keystone anything. I mean, essentially, you know, but this is I think but I think this is what's important with product development is that it's essentially designing into a price point. So I can look, I can look at a product and, you know, kind of kind of reverse engineer and say to myself, okay, if my factory is giving me a first cost of $12, but I need it to be more like $6, I know how to kind of break it down and kind of uh, piece by piece take apart all of the components so that I'm designing the product, not only for the price point, but so that the end consumer doesn't see a difference in what I drew as a piece of paper to what I made in a final product.
0: Okay. Okay. Does it, does yeah, that, that makes sense. sense. So it's, it's, it's kind of like, I'm, I'm, yeah, that looks, that's $12 to people who know what they're doing. The consumer yes. doesn't really see it unless they're looking for that higher end. If somebody wants to, to buy right. a $12 shirt, it's not that big of a deal. They're going to wear it. They're going to find it. If it works, it works. If it, if it's okay, it's still pretty much okay.
1: I think that's probably one of the hardest skills that you develop in the fashion industry is being able to design into a price point and not just design amazing product. There's a there's an in between. You always have to kind of push the envelope to kind to show what's on trend or, you know, what's the new product is for the consumer, but at the same time you also have to understand budget and profit because you know, if like we were talking about you know, $12 t-shirts, if the t t-shirt is $12, it's $12, no matter what you do to it, no matter if you put a piece of artwork on the front of it, if you change the fabric. So you have to be aware of what your end retail price will be so that you can design the appropriate product into that price point while making a profit at the same right, time.
0: You, yeah. You just said, you know, then you're putting an image on it and that's licensing and that's a whole nother money suck at that point.
1: Yeah, I mean, that pays more, that involves more money as well. But essentially, it'll never cost more money to make. As a brand, you will never increase your retail because I decided to make it with a novelty fabric or I decided to make it with an extra piece of artwork on it. Like, I thought this graphic tee, this graphic that I designed was really fabulous. So I slapped it on the front of a t shirt. Well, guess what? That graphic is a dollar, but you're still only gonna charge you're you're still only gonna twelve charge twelve dollars to the customers. So, you know, I have to be aware of what other things I might have to do in order for that design to fit into that twelve dollar price point.
0: I, I hate saying it, but it does seem like it sucks the creativity out of it, but it sounds like that is really where the creativity has to get ramped up.
1: I mean, that's why I typically refer to product development as a combination between creative and technical, because you're still expected to be creative, but at the end of the day, if something doesn't work within your pricing strategies, then it's your responsibility to reverse engineer it. So it's very technical in being able to break apart piece by piece in order to get that cost down.
0: Okay. Then I'm going to ask, then then that that brings up the question, is the $5 t-shirt really that much worse than the $12 t-shirt? Or is it a very limited number of people that are really paying attention to it? Is it more, is it the salesmanship or is it actually quality?
1: I think it's both. I think quality definitely plays a part into it. I mean, obviously from $5 to $12, you're still getting what you pay for, so to speak. Um, But there is definitely a difference as far as make, um, you know, the $5 t-shirt might shrink substantially more than the $12 t-shirt. You know, there's all different parts. Um, it's really in in retrospect. It's all about well, who is the customer? What is their expectation? What do they want for that price that they're spending? So, for instance, I mean, granted, I'm in in the industry, but if I'm buying a five dollar t shirt, I know I'm wearing it probably a handful of times, washing it a handful of times, and then throwing it away. If I want something to last a long period of time, I'm willing to invest in that product, but you know, I also need to know that it's well-made, you know, I won't just pay extra money to pay extra money, but essentially There are certain things that you're willing to pay more money for because you're expecting them to last longer.
0: It kind of brings up that idea of, you know, when you meet people who are really into thrifting and I can, I I myself have gone, I probably still have a couple of dress shirts that I bought at a thrift store when I first had to start buying dress shirts. And I remember seeing, you know, I still have one and it was just, it fit well. And I'm a big guy, so it's always hard to find big shirts, but on the label, it was single stitch it had a label that so was single stitch tailoring and i was like i wonder what that means but like i still own that shirt and it was probably 25 years old when i bought it
1: it's very well made i mean i think that's the that's the thing with thrifting i mean i also i mean i think it's sort of this trend where it's like people are shifting towards more well made products which is why thrifting is well for two reasons. Why thrifting is important, also for the sustainability factor. But essentially, things that were made uh, twenty years ago, thirty years ago, they're so much better made than they are made now. You know, what I mean. But then it was about well-made products, more so about kind of what the style was. Where now it's about consumption and how can we get you know as many pieces as possible. I mean, I'm happy to see that that shift is kind of being made. But if, I mean, if I was to look at like what my mom was wearing when she was my age, if she still had it, it's much better well-made than what I'm wearing today.
0: So how did you get involved into this business? Did you did you want to go into that product development side or was it catwalks and fashion and things like
1: that? <laughs> well, I was um, like most that are interested in fashion. They loved fashion from whenever they can remember. Um, I think my parents tell me to this day that when I was 12, I wanted to move to New York City and be a fashion designer. Um, So yeah, I mean, I wanted to be in women's wear. I did. Um, I went to school. Um, Honestly, I wasn't 100% sure what part of fashion I really wanted to be in. Um, And I think that's common today, especially because there's so many parts of fashion and so many are kind of unknown. So I went to a school where, you know, it kind of touched upon all of these different areas and I kind of knew that I wanted to be in women's wear. Um, But when I was graduating college, um, I honestly took the first job that was offered to me, which was in technical design in children's wear. Not really what I went to school for, uh, wasn't planning on getting into children's wear, um, but I found it to be really fun. I mean, obviously having live fit models that are five and six years old can be really <laughs> cute. So that when you when you see kind of product shrunken down into a little, little kid size, like the first thing you, you're like, oh, this is so cute. So um, you know, I worked there for a few years and at the time it was a company that was uh half of their office was in New York City and their half of their office was in Massachusetts, and I was in Massachusetts. And we used to travel to New York about, you know, every, I don't know, two or three months in order to go to collection meetings, to review the new collection, to have fits with the um, designer and product developer. And that's kind of when I was aware, when I was introduced to the design product development side, that's when I really kind of knew that's what I wanted to do and not technical design. Um, so along the way, somebody, you know, left their role within our department. Um, so the designer that I was working with in the technical design area, she sent out one of those emails that said, Oh, you know, so-and-so is leaving. And I called her up and I asked her if she would ever consider me for that job.
0: And so about three
1: weeks later, (laughs) I know. And it's funny, I was a big introvert back then. (laughs) So I'm still (laughs) shocked that I ever did that. Um, but, I mean, it was my dream. I mean, I wanted to move to New York. And, you know, I think at that time, I didn't think that I was going to get any recognition because, you know, New York City is so big. And it's so and hard to high get High fashion, started there. haute
0: couture stuff.
1: So I was like, you know what? Worst case scenario, she says no. Well, about three weeks later, I was in a U-Haul moving myself <laughs> to New York City. <laughs> and, oh, hey, crap. You know, she I said yes. Kind of <laughs> No, I mean, it was great. I, I mean, yes, of course, it. they made it challenging because, you know, they moved me as quick as possible, but, you know, I mean, it was great. And then I just kind of stayed in, um, children's wear for the rest of my career. Um, I started as an assistant product developer, um, in the boys department. Um, and I think as, as at the time I thought boys was not that fun, <laughs> but I realized I, because yeah. I mean, I don't know how much you. I mean, the company was called Talbots, and I don't know how much you know about Talbots, but it's very conservative. Yes, yeah. So there was no create, creative yeah, reign, yeah. you know what I mean? So, but it really got me to understand fabrics because fabric was the most exciting part of my job. You know, the new denim washes or, you know, how can I make these twill pants more exciting?
0: I got a two and a half year old. So the, the, you look at their clothes and go, that looks like, oh, but it's just that lightweight baby material. You know, exactly. And it's like, wow, I mean, that, look look like re- that looks like a real thing.
1: You learn how to improvise really quickly. It's like, how can I make denim into, how can I look, make a knit fabric look like a denim so that everybody is happy about it?
0: And how, did, how, does so it, how can I make on, this so the poop washes out easily? And it, snap, exactly. and it snaps on instead. <laughs> I want zippers, not snaps easy. and things like that.
1: And then, yeah, I just kind of started as assistant product manager. And then I eventually moved myself up through the ranks. Um, I eventually left Talbots and worked for another company called Towel Associates who did wholesale product and I was the product manager for Absorba which is a French licensed label here in the United States. Um, I was there for a really long time so I worked my way up the ranks. I eventually uh, was a director of product development and ran the department and then from there I went to uh, a company called Con Lucas which is a girls dress company that does private label dresses for girls' sizes two to sixteen, essentially.
0: So I want—I I definitely want to talk about that because you brought up something that I want to—I want to ask you about because it, it's one of those things about fashion I find fascinating, is the fit model and the designing for different fits, because it seems like you know when you th- when everybody thinks fashion again, we, you know we keep saying catwalk and haute couture and size zero, six foot tall woman, and that never exists. And even when you're looking, you're like no one's going to wear that. And no one ever does, but it looks really cool. But then how how are you thinking about designing a product for the person that's a size four to a size 12 and still make it look good?
1: I think that's more involved in kind of the technical design aspect and fitting on different models so that the proportions are accurate. And consistent from size to size. I mean, being that I was in kids, um, we—I mean, not to say that we didn't think about yeah. it, but you know, still kid. it wasn't pu- a kid still a kid. So if they were proportionately a little bit different, then you know, so be it. Um, but in women's wear, I mean, I think it's important for you to kind of uh, think about the size category that you're working in and make sure that you're fitting it in different. Sizes. So essentially, even if your, your sample size is size six, because, you know, that's industry standard or size four, um, then if you're running up to size 12, 14, 16, that you would also fit the size 12 to make sure that proportions are accurate, because it's not just about grading up, you know, incremental size by size, it's thinking about like, you know, how this person's body shape changes, so you might have to make some additional adjustments. Um, I mean, I guess I wouldn't say that I I didn't necessarily design differently. It was more about kind of when that fitting came along. It was if we were concerned about bodice length being too low for somebody that is a little bit rounder in the waist, we would make sure that we looked at that sample in a larger size and make the appropriate adjustments. So that's more so in kind of refining patterns as opposed to like what I'm drawing on the paper. Got it.
0: Okay. Okay. Because I, I know that, that it's like I you know I keep going back to Target because you know we're you know we're all in lockdown, so there's very few places we get to go and see people anymore. But I noticed the last time I was in Target, seeing that all the mannequins were a bit more Rubenesque and a bit more filled out and a bit more modern style, and it was just kind of like, huh, interesting.
1: It's about time. Um, I mean, I hate to say this, but You know, the average customer is like a 14 or a 16, not a size, not a size four or size six. So, you know, for us to continue, I mean, even in an eight, I mean, I think an eight is a little more universal, but essentially it's the smaller size of the size run or it should be. But the American customer is a 14, not a size four on average. So I think this conception of like model sizing, you know, is not realistic because essentially if something looks really good on the model or the mannequin for that matter, you know, as it sits in the visual display, who's to say it's going to look good on you? You know, I mean, so I think making or showing the product on mannequins with a little bit more of a natural size makes a little more sense for the consumer. It's more attractive. And it also kind of goes along with this, you know, the the ideals that are trending of like love your body and kind of everything, everybody is beautiful. So it kind of reinforces that. Well, also.
0: So let's take a quick break and let me ask you this question. Are you looking for the right school to get in-demand skills in creative industries? You are invited to our upcoming interactive online open house where you can learn about our over 40 art and design programs, admissions, financial aid, campus life, and more. Our admissions team will also be available via online chat throughout the event to answer whatever questions you may have. RSVP today at academyart.edu slash podcast. So, I mean, you know, we're going to talk monetarily. I mean, you know, if you're going to, if you're a design student, you know, you do have to be able to design for your customer and your customer may not be who you think they are.
1: Yeah, I mean, I didn't like Talbot's clothing. I mean, it wasn't for me at, you know, in my early 20s, but I had to understand who that customer was and what their expectations were so that I was designing products appropriate for them and their children. I mean, you know, yes, would I go home and design and sew things that I liked for myself? Yes, I would. But at the end of the day, my job was to design for somebody else. And if I didn't do that successfully, then the product failed. And that would be probably the worst decision I made. So, I mean, it's true. It's, you know, it's, I I say this a lot actually to students and it's not meant, you know, to kind of push them down, but it's, it doesn't matter what you like.
0: Right. For sure. Absolutely.
1: It's, I like a lot of things that you know, I can't design because that's not what my target customer is looking for. More importantly, it's, would your target customer like this? Why? Why is it appropriate for the customer? What purposes does it serve? I designed a lot of things I didn't like in my time. Not going to say I was happy about it, but you know, that's, that's what makes my paycheck. So
0: if you want to be a working artist, you do have to follow what you're Creative director is telling you to do, or you're going to be moving companies a whole lot of times.
1: Or you're, yes, you won't be there for a long period of time. You know, I mean, I used to design what I liked for myself. You know, every once in a while I would design something that I liked for myself, or I would try and push the envelope, you know, to kind of incorporate some of those components in the new design for the brand. But I always had to take into account, like, is this pushing the envelope too far for them? You know, Okay, so just because I like it doesn't mean, so what can I do that kind of incorporates the trend, the things that I like about trends without going so far that it's going to drive that customer away?
0: You used to keep saying trend and a trend could be that something nobody really likes. It's just trending whether we like it or not. I mean, there's a lot of trends like God, I mean, geez, really? That's why is that happening? That that looks horrible. There's nothing attractive, male, female, big or small in that trend. Why are we doing that?
1: Trends come about because of the response of what's happening in the world. Um, You know, so they're not going away. Uh, Some obviously last longer than others, but I think it's how you kind of incorporate trends and how you adapt trends for your customer and your brand is what makes you or that brand successful.
0: I'm only going to say it once. Mom jeans never good. They weren't good then. They weren't. They aren't good now.
1: Yeah, <laughs> just, I know. They Some just don't. Really,
0: they're not flattering. Come on.
1: <laughs> they're not flattering. But I think there's. I mean, you know, think about the generations that are wearing it. You know, I mean, it's it's not about it's about being trendy. It's not about being comfortable. It's not about you know. So I think you know we all kind of want to adapt those trends. It's just you know, is it appropriate for the customer that you're going after? I mean, you wouldn't, you wouldn't try and, you know, encompass the mom gene to the baby boomer. They're not going to take that trend on. They lived it once. They're not yeah, living it yeah. again.
0: We're done. <laughs> <laughs> we we, we, don't, we don't think it's funny. We, we were stuck with that. <laughs> yeah, no. we,
1: we suffered through it the first right. time. Why are we doing it again? Well, I, I mean, but I say that about, I say that about like seventies trends. Like I remember when polyester pants came back and I was, but my mom laughed at me because she was like, I, that was, I mean, silhouette wise, she loved them, but the fabrics is just awful. And I mean, it sticks to your body and it's really uncomfortable. And it starts and to yet stink. I wore, it has
0: that weird and smell. Yet,
1: although I, yet, yet I wore them for years. I mean, it was like the thing to do. So, I mean, I look at my students in the classroom and I think to myself, "Why?" Well, i you look just like me when I
0: was in college. <laughs> I know. I do I see, see. I'm like, yeah, I'm not that old, but oh, holy cow, guys. It wasn't that cool. <laughs> I'm
1: like, I wore all of that. I dyed my hair blue. I did all of that stuff.
0: But let, let's talk a little bit about private label because that's another thing that kind of fascinates me because that's something that I think – when you know you know we're in the age of you know everybody's a content creator everybody's an entrepreneur everybody is i've got my label i've got my thing I'm, I'm i'm my own brand and so everything you see of them is like hey you can buy my crappy t-shirt or you can buy something on there and you know we've gone what now 15 years since cafe press and things like that where you could get these made to order stuff but private label or white you call it white label or gray label Just private label, label. okay. Uh, Just private label has been around for forever.
1: It's been around for a a long time. I think uh, you know it originally came about because uh, not necessarily just department stores, but department stores needed kind of that money maker that would sit next to all the wholesale brands that they had in the store. So essentially, like you know, of course, all of the department stores are. fading away too but like the Nordstrom's of the world you know they have all of this wholesale product from these brands that are in their store and essentially they don't make as much money on wholesale products so um you know because they're buying them from someone else so they started so essentially you know you're designing your own collection where you can be kind of the controller of that product You're doing the designing, you're doing the selection of materials and colors, trends you want to incorporate, you're sourcing manufacturers that are going to make this product for you so that you can make a higher uh, profit um, off of this and maybe even so sell it slightly less than some of these wholesale brands so that your customer, you know, will take this instead. Um, Yeah, they're 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 not
0: leaving the store. For any week right.
1: it's like, okay, you're here to get this stuff here. take our product too, and you know maybe you'll spend a little less money and I'll make a little bit more money. so but it kind of so essentially it was you know considered cheap knockoffs of like wholesale product that already existed. you know, it wasn't it wasn't thought of as a positive component. but you know as the industry kind of transitioned and people realized that like this is really the way to make money, then everybody started designing their own products, sourcing their own manufacturers, and executing the product on their own. Because at the end of the day, they can then make the product that they want, and they can—you know—there's no middleman. They all of the money that they make goes directly to them.
0: And re- so re- retail ex- is a retail a very small margin anyway, so every point counts.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, when I was working for with a wholesale company, you know, depending on. Um, you know, which label it was, our margins were anywhere from 25% to, you know, 50%. And believe it or not, 50% uh, is, even though they refer to it as keystone pricing, it's not gonna make, you're not gonna make money if you stick with 50% for your life. I mean, it's just, it's too hard to control really overhead for that to be kind of your 100% margin. You know, I mean, yes, I mean, it's, it's not, it's not feasible, really. I mean, ideally you would make more like 65% so that you had a little bit. Oh my God. Okay. That's a, that's a
0: huge bump.
1: Wow. But you know, in the, in the wholesale field, you know, 35 to, you know, 25 to 45. I mean, I would say probably 35 to 55 is probably more feasible, but I mean, I worked with, you know, places that were working on much lower margins because we also did discount. So 20% was a normal, was a normal profit margin. So anything that we did private label, we could make much more money on, you know, we would be making, you know, 40% on that same product because we didn't have to, you know, like pay the other, pay the middleman. So Uh, I mean, from there, I think, you know, people just realize that, again, this is where you can control, you can decide on the designs, there's no person that is telling you what it needs to look like. um, And you can do whatever you want to do. So this is why now, anybody can kind of, not anybody, but, you know, there's this explosion of private label product, and you can just It's
0: attractive, it's becoming an attractive avenue to start and maybe even
1: stay. Yeah, I mean it's a it's an attractive business model. I think that people are thinking of it as like okay, you know, if I have the creativity, I can definitely come up and do all of this, you know, Myself. You know, I mean, it's no longer about the big brands of the world. You know, the wholesale product was essentially like, okay, I have this retail space, but I don't have the d- creative component to create my own product. So let me go grab products from other places and build an assortment. Whereas private label, you're building your assortment. You're, you know, you you know the ins and outs of your customer, you're designing your product specifically for that customer, and you're directly making any money that's made yourself.
0: So it's almost kind of like you're coming backwards into being a fashion house. Because it, it sounds like that. Like, you know, if I'm going to have a fashion house, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be haute couture. I'm going to do this and that. And it's like, well, no, I got a retail space. and I'm going to fill it. But I want something that looks good. And I've got an idea. And I can go get that done directly. As a, I mean, still yeah, still that same idea. Directly. But a little more, hey, I got to sell the stuff today. I got shelves to turn
1: if you have the creative people or the creative part to me there, you might as well be, you know, a direct to consumer private, with a private label brand, because then you're kind of, you're in control of what it is that you're doing. And I think that to people is very attractive.
0: What then is the basic idea for a student They've got their basic line, let's say, let's say they have their collection and they're gonna start trying to develop this clothing line, this product. Um, What are some of the things they should start thinking about?
1: First and foremost, who their customer is and who they're selling this product to. Um, That way, so that they can make sure that the price points that they determined um, are something that the customer is gonna go after. Um, and then I would probably say, make sure you research the competitors, um, knowing who else is already in the marketplace or kind of in that area that you wanna kind of build upon is important to the success of your business. Because at the end of the day, you're only as good as your best competition. So you always have to strive to be better than them in some way, shape or form.
0: I, question about that. Cause as we're talking about clothing and sizing and stuff, um, just there's a brand that I personally like but it was it's a French brand and it's decathlon it's a sporting sporting goods store and I had never seen them in the US I lived overseas and they were big overseas because it was a Western brand in Asia so it's like if you were uh, from the US or, or Europe and you wanted to buy clothes in Asia chances are you had to go there because it was the only thing that was gonna fit you and then you know so as you're researching brands <clears throat> how wide is your research going? is it as much as you can go? Cause if I want to do sporting goods or something sporty, do I look as far away as Europe or am I looking locally or how, how deep do you want to go?
1: I think it depends on what your expectations are as a business. So if you're planning to sell, you know, only in the United States, then I would say you probably only have to focus on brands in the United States. Um, if you're, even smaller in that, you know, you're going to have a brick and mortar location somewhere in New York City. Maybe you want to understand the competitors that are in that particular shopping area. So it's really going to depend. I mean, what we tell students in class currently is to think about it in twofolds think about who the market leaders are. So if you're thinking about athletic wear, you would automatically research Nike, maybe Lululemon, you know, so you'd automatically kind of have a brand awareness of those leaders that have been around for a while. And then the smaller competitors, because you're a new brand starting out. So who are the other new brands starting out in the same area? So I think it kind of depends on um, how your business model is going to form, whether it's going to be You know, e commerce direct to consumer, whether it's going to be brick and mortar direct to consumer. And then from there, you're kind of defining who your competitors are based on your location, based on their target customer, your target customer, and kind of the end use of their product.
0: That's got to scare students to death because that's really taking them to task.
1: Well, I mean, (laughs) mean, you're telling
0: me that I'm going, oh man, you mean I just don't make my shirt?
1: But I think it's important because essentially, so if you think about it, like I was just saying that anybody can start a private label brand nowadays, right? So if anybody can start a private label brand, how can you define who's successful and who's not? If you don't understand what's happening in the fashion industry, or more specifically in that area that you plan to get into, you're not very uh, unlikely to be successful because why is a customer going to come to you as a new brand just because you think you have good products? You know, I mean, you have to offer something that doesn't already exist in the marketplace.
0: Right. Cause you're never, if you're like, you, we were talking about sportswear, you're never going to beat Nike or Adidas.
1: You're never, you can't compete with Nike. So essentially, you know, what are the components that people are looking for that is attractive as far as your customer is concerned? You know I mean? At the end of the day, Nike is, you know, I mean, I'm not going to say here to stay because unfortunately a lot of brands that we thought would be here for a long <laughs> yeah, who time knows? are no longer Who knows what
0: what's going to happen?
1: But I mean, Nike, you know, Nike is a leader in, you know, the active wear market. So likely you're not going to directly compete with them. Obviously they're a competitor because they're in the market, but what are they doing right that makes them so successful? You should use those as points to be, you know make your product even better.
0: And then, so after research <clears throat> and that trend research, what's some of the things that a student needs to start really thinking about? Factory visits, things like that. How important are, are those types of you know, personal, professional field trips, so to speak, of going out and actually seeing? I mean, should, should somebody go work as a seamstress or a seam, I don't know what the, what is the masculine version of seamstress, a sewer? for lack of a better term, uh, you know, go and actually get their hands dirty and and nicked up and, and sew for a week or two or ten?
1: Not necessarily. I mean, I think that even if, you know, I mean, I know how to sew, but at the end of the day, if you threw me in a, you know, a factory, there are sewing machines that I've never uh used firsthand you know i mean i've used like your basic industrial sewing machines but now they have you know all sorts of specialized sewing machines that are you know to kind of make the process quicker so i don't think you necessarily i mean yes having the ability or the knowledge to be able to sew a garment is definitely helpful because you understand how a garment is made so when a factory is discussing some of these things with you you can, um, you know, whether it's appropriate for your product, um, as far as quality or speed or whatever, you know, element is most important in your brand. I think, uh, seeing like going to a factory, visiting a factory is probably a great opportunity. I don't know that a lot of people will allow for you to come in. Um, you know, it's, It's sometimes it's, they're very open and other times they're not. Um, Local places will let you come in. Um, Sometimes they won't let you go back into the factory um, area. Instead, they'll have you in kind of a showroom component. And it's not so much that they don't want, I mean, it's not so much that they don't want you to see what's going on as far as like, whether it's bad things that are going on, it's more they don't want you to see other people's product, you know? So it's kind of about more about integrity than it is about anything else. probably the
0: little tricks they've developed that shave two seconds here, half a second here, one millimeter of cloth here, that's saving Yeah, I mean,
1: everything is not, yeah, they're doing everything to make it a little bit faster. So it's not all, you know, perfect, but, you know, whatever corners they can cut along the way, they probably are. But I know, um, so I was lucky enough to have an opportunity to travel overseas, um, to do factory visits for, a company and I think it really kind of opened my eyes because essentially, yes, I knew how to use your sewing machines. I knew how how to use a sewing machine. I sewed at home. I made most of my own clothes. But until I was in the factory and saw it firsthand, I didn't fully understand why factories wanted me to change the things that they wanted me to change. You know, um, you know, and I, you know, it's all about speed, capacity, ease of construction, you know, and and they're the expert in that. You know, it doesn't mean that you have to agree to everything that they want you to do because it's not always right for the product. But then once I saw it and I kind of understood why they were asking me for these things, I was much, uh, I was kind of more open to their suggestions. Granted, you always want to see an example of what it is that they're kind of offering to you. To make sure that you're not sacrificing, you know, the quality of the product. But essentially I learned, I kind of learned more of the, okay, so this is a process where I need to make 6,000 units. And in order for me to do that in the three weeks that I'm giving them to do that, I need to kind of understand from a production standpoint, how it's made.
0: Right. Cause you guys work from, and you know, you've said, and I think everybody in fashion has said that you go from school to you're working on a tech pack. Um, and, you know, just you know, to clarify, what's a, what is a tech pack? I know it's a big, giant sheet. It's got a lot of dots and dashes on it, but...
1: So a tech pack is essentially uh, all of the pages that are required for a factory to make a garment. So it includes um, what we refer to as a technical flat sketch, which is a front and back flat, two-dimensional representation of the silhouette that you want to manufacture. Um, It includes all of the materials that are required to make the garment. So fabrics, trims, accessories, linings, interlinings. Um, It includes size specifications. So the measurements of the garment that make it how it fits on the body. Um, And then what construction details. So information about different seams and stitches and how the garment is made. So this is done... um, with visuals along with written components so that the factory can kind of look at this sketch and be like, okay, I know how this is made. And then from there, they make this prototype sample where you're responsible for kind of reviewing all of the parts um, inside and out to make sure that everything is made the way you want it to be made. Um, And then once you approve that, then they can kind of move forward in their process.
0: Because it does, yeah, I've seen them and they seem very much like a, a crazy jigsaw puzzle where it's like, you know, if the f- shirt comes, you know, you can, I can see how the argument starts and I can hear it where we followed your tech pack. It's not my fault. The thing looks wonky.
1: Yes. So, and that happens a lot. Um, you know, the tech pack is really kind of what a factory uses to do all of their pre-production and production processes. So a factory is how a, a garment is um costed it's how a factory plans for production they have to plan all of their materials off of this one bill of materials um, for production instead of like just one style and they have to kind of uh, plan the amount of time that it's going to take for them to make this based on the details that you included in a tech pack i mean what the advantages of uh like once you've been in the industry for a little while is that you have some sort of relationship with your factories. So they know kind of what your expectation is. So if there's an error along the way, they pick up on it and then they ask you the questions. Uh, When you're working with a factory for the first, like say I decided to start my own brand tomorrow. I, I mean, I did my first tech pack right out of school i mean i've done them in school but hey i'm going to tech pack my whole collection i'm going to send it off the factory is going to send me samples they're not going to ask me any questions they're just going to do it because what i wrote to them is what i want so if something was missing or if something wasn't clear doesn't matter they just move so but that's why um i mean like i would always say no matter who you work with, never commit to anything without a prototype sample, Um, you know, whether it's your prototype sample that you've made with a sample maker, you know, that you know, or locally that you trust, and then use that sample along with your tech pack and send it to a factory to kind of go through the process. If you don't have a sample that you're starting from, ask the factory to make a first prototype sample, you will have to pay for this sample but if you place an order with them, it gets kind of absorbed in the cost of production and it's much safer. You never you never ever want to start with a fa- start per any type of uh, process with a factory without seeing what their quality expectations are, what their what their uh, handiwork skills are, you know, because. Just because you write something in a piece of paper, they're going to tell you they can
0: do it. (laughs) Right, right. No matter what. If there's a check, I can do it. Yes, of course I can do it. I can
1: do it. I can do it. And a lot of times they can't. I mean, I went to a factory once and I was doing knit garments and I sent it to this factory. They told me they did knits and wovens. And then when I got there, they only had sewing machines for wovens. So I was like, how can you do my knit garments if you have no, you know, no sewing machines that are that work for a knit garment. And they're like, well, we'll do it, we'll do it, we'll do it. No, they, they're gonna outsource it to somebody else and then I'm not gonna be happy with the quality that I'm getting. So, you know, and th- that's part of the reason why I think factory visits are important. But if you see that sample, you'll get a sense of what they can actually execute. So it
0: sounds like, you know, for students or, or you know, for anybody in this industry, um, but students especially, there's a, a different set of skills other than how to make something look cool. It's it's really getting into you know hardcore business tough butt kicking kind of doing way of doing things that you got to learn how to you know make your 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 business thrive.
1: Yeah, I mean, I do think that there's other parts of it, um, although some of them, I think. Uh, you learn on the job as opposed to not to say you don't learn about it in school. But for instance, I wasn't comfortable negotiating costs with a factory until I'd been doing it on the job for a few years. Yes. I learned about it in school. I understood what it meant, but like, you're basically telling somebody that no, you won't pay for what they're giving you. I mean, it's, it's challenging, you know, especially when you're first out of school. So I think understanding the process is the most important part and kind of really being able to make something creative, go through building a tech pack, go through searching for factories, understanding kind of what would be the best country to manufacture in because of, you know, the type of garment that you're making. Some of the other stuff, you know, is going to be kind of your business savvy in that you need to be extroverted, be willing to say no, kind of fight back for what you want, which might, which might not come right off the bat. I mean, like I said before, I was really introverted when I first got into the industry. And then I realized that if I don't ask Nobody, I'll, I'll never get what I want.
0: And how, then how does this, like the school's got, what is it, shop 657? There's
1: a couple courses. Um, it's mostly actually for fashion merchandising and marketing students, um, more so than product development students. But I mean, product development students are welcome. Um, where we, in the course, we're responsible for designing the private label logo product. And the students work with the local manufacturers to get that done. So, you know, it's a little less uh, time consuming in that they're not getting the products cut and sewn. Um, it's more so about um, designing graphic artwork or, you know, components that are being placed onto a shirt or a sweatshirt. Or, but this really gives them the opportunity to negotiate, to, you know, to talk to a factory directly, to plan, you know, production. Yeah, I mean, they're given a budget for the product that they need to make. They have to design it, execute it, market it, sell it. I mean, they have to do it all. It's, it, but it's really a great learning experience because it really kind of puts them in what they would be doing once they get out of school. I mean, talking to a factory, no matter what they're responsible for, embroidery, screen printing, or cutting and sewing, it's kind of a overwhelming task, you know, because you get information from somebody and you automatically are like, okay, well, great. Thank you. But, but really, no, you have to ask a bunch of different questions. You have to kind of give pushback, you know, just because somebody tells you it costs $10 doesn't mean that you're going to say, oh yeah, okay, I'll pay $10 you know, you have to kind of look back. Oh, well, how much did we pay for that last year? Oh, well, how come it's gone up $2? You know, So, I mean, obviously in one semester, they can only do so much. So, but essentially this is the process that they would go through in order to design new product in a new season for a brand.
0: Right. Cause it's always the old grizzled veteran that tells you the story. It's like, no, no, no. You want an end run on a holiday weekend when the lights are out, when the factory manager's not there. That's how I get my stuff done. I get it 12% under. You're like, how did that happen? (laughs) Who did you know to do that?
1: Right, exactly. <laughs>
0: well, that kind of brings exactly. up those those last three questions we always, you know, want want students to think about and ask. You guys, who are the experts, is that first day that I'm going into school to study fashion product development. What do I really need to know? Where does my mindset need to be?
1: Uh, I would say two things probably: be flexible and be open-minded to other people's opinions. Ooh, that's tough. I mean, I think, I know, but at the end of the day, you know, business means you're not designing for yourself. So, you know, kind of really absorbing critique and understanding why you're getting the opinions that you're getting is going to make you better at what you're doing. You know, what I mean, I always contribute my success in my career to those that I s- surrounded me. I mean, I didn't I didn't know anything when I went into the industry. I learned everything I learned by doing and having a great support system and appreciating kind of all of those surrounding counterparts that were experts in their role. You know, the one thing about product development or design, any of the aspects, it's not one person's job to get this done. You work with a team of people. So you really have to be flexible to take on different responsibilities work with different people, kind of appreciate different personalities in order to get the job done every season, every week, whatever it is. So I think going into school, you kind of have that same attitude of like, okay, I'm here to take in as much as I possibly can. Everything that is either, you know, given as critique or pushback is only to make me stronger. It's not to kind of push me down and insult me. It's to make me a better designer, a better product developer, a better merchandiser.
0: To make me uh, a successful person, (laughs) which is hard.
1: I mean, I always say the fashion industry is tough. You have to have thick skin. I mean, I only wish somebody told me that before I moved to New York City. But trust me, New York City taught me really fast that (laughs) you have to just kind of take it in stride and go on your way. It's it's there no matter what, so it only makes you better to absorb it, kind of uh, make adjustments where necessary, and then run after it.
0: So what then should a student think about then, you know, once they've graduated, how are they going to go about getting into this, this side of the industry?
1: No, I mean, I think it's a few different things. I think you have to still be, you have to be humble, um, you know, know what you're good at, but, you know, make sure that you're humble about it. Make sure that you're networking with people. Um, It's all about who you know. Um, And the industry is surprisingly small. Um, You know, you think of the fashion industry as being this really large place that like you're never gonna run into a person again. If I can only tell you how many times (laughs) 20 years passed and all of a sudden I was standing next to a person that I met when I was, you know, first in the industry. So I think, you know, you have to, you know, kind of run the all of the effort of like networking, putting your face in front of people, getting people to remember you. So, you know, kind of speaking up, but yet being respectful and kind of telling them, hey, you know, I can do this. But then also remembering and I wish somebody told me this when I first started that, you know, just because you're eager doesn't mean that you are responsible for doing everything under the sun. I mean, I I think somebody told me finally, after i have been in the industry for a while, it's okay to say no for once in a while. So it's just because, I mean, I was really eager and I couldn't wait to like get in the industry. So it was like, yes, 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 yes. Well, guess what? I worked 12 hours a day, seven days a week because every time somebody handed me something, I was like, yes, 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 yes. So the perspective has to change in that you should say, oh, you know, I would be, I would love to help, but I have an awful lot on my plate right now. When when would this be due? So it's just kind of like either, not necessarily being flat out like, no, I won't do that for you. But just being like, oh, you know, there's a lot going on right now. What's the timeline? Is there anybody else that can help me to do this? You know, that's okay. You're not disrespected because, or you're not thought of as a, lazy worker or you know somebody that can't handle the workload
0: oh that's good to hear yeah some there's some reality to it well no
1: essentially you're learning how to manage your time appropriately if you just say yes 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 all the time then you're not meeting your deadlines you're not getting your work done on time unless you're working 24 hours a day which nobody should do it's
0: gonna be you're, you're gonna burn you're out. Gonna, gonna burn be yourself
1: work. out really fast
0: so then that kind of answers this last one. But, I, you know, I always ask people because this is one that I, I've had to learn 20 years on. And and it's always a different, you know, it's always the little things. But how does somebody not get fired from their first job? Because <laughs> you got there. But, you know, there's so, there's so many landmines and, and puddles that we step in. It's like, how do you not get fired?
1: Um, I would say some of the things that. I probably wish I started doing at an earlier stage, make lists of things that you're asked to do so that things don't slip through the cracks. Cause again, I said, yes, 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 yes to everything. So some things slip through the cracks and that really kind of looks bad at what it is that you do. Um, I mean, from the most part, I would say, you know, things like, show up to work on time, be attentive in meetings, um, you know, answer questions. Um, I think a lot of the times when you get started in a job, you feel like, no, I can't talk. I'm just here to be kind of follow direction. You know, people want to hear what you have to say. You know, you're you're hired for a reason. So, you know, you're already respected as you get your foot in the door. So, you know, say something, you know, speak up. I mean, I know that was something that I was told a lot Um, at any job I started that, you know, it always took me a few weeks to like settle in and speak up. Um, And I think that's a personality thing more so than, um, but, you know, it wasn't until I spoke up that people were kind of more appreciative of my presence. Right. No, that
0: that makes sense. I mean, a lot of people in the creative field that it's like, you know, you, we, we know what you can do,
1: I mean, they so we right, hired They you. hired you. So, so now
0: now show so me. So there's
1: a reason why you were hired. So don't feel like just because you it's your first day or your first week that you can't speak up. I mean, again, you want to be respectful and not go in thinking that you know everything because we never know anything, even to this day. <laughs> you
0: don't. <laughs> I mean,
1: even with 20 years. The thinking, one
0: constant is you don't know even anything. Even <laughs> with 20 years
1: experience, I would say there's still things that like I probably would learn along the way. So, you know, I think you can speak up but then also make sure that you're listening to what people are saying around you because they've been doing it for a long time and they kind of know the ins and outs of the location of the place that you just started.
0: This is the part that I think that so many people whether you're in fashion or or, or not is I know how to do something creative but now I got to get a paycheck for it. How does that work? How do I work for a company being creative?
1: Yeah, I mean I think it's something that I mean I, I don't know. I think you think that it's just all unicorns and candy canes. And then, you know, you realize that there's a little more grit in the behind the scenes of like, you know, how do I actually get this out, get this awesome idea I have out to the world? So there's a lot of digging. And, you know, I think once you kind of know how to approach that, it's a much easier uh, thing to follow to be successful in business.
0: So hopefully now you've got some good insight into what it means to actually start your fashion line or what it's going to take if you're going to hire a fashion designer or how you're going to be able to be successful with your latest round of free t-shirts that you're gonna have to pay for for your entrepreneurial idea. A lot goes into fashion. It's not just the design. It's actually getting what people want to buy into a place where they can buy it and you make a profit. And those are just some of the basic in-demand skills in the creative industry of fashion. Employers are always on the hunt for the next generation of talented and skilled creative professionals. And here at Academy of Art University, you will get those work-ready skills that employers want. You can study on-site in downtown San Francisco and of course, anywhere in the world via our online programs. To request more info about our 40-plus areas of study in art and design, including fashion development, fashion design, fashion photography, UX design, gaming, just visit our website at academyart.edu slash
1: creative mind. Thanks again. Bye-bye.